Our Old Covenant reading this evening comes from the prophet Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 6 this evening. Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkush. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Our new covenant reading this evening comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up to a sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, knowing their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow as to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, 
and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Turn back with me, if you would, to Nahum chapter 1, as that will be where this evening's sermon comes from. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this evening, we recognize full well that it is only by your word, accompanied by your spirit, that anything good comes to us. Lord, we of ourselves are in utter darkness. And it is only the gift of your grace, through the illumination of your spirit, through the application of Christ's redemption for us by your spirit, that we have indeed the promise of eternal life. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would shine a light in our hearts, that we, you, we would see as you desire that we see. Lord, that we would see you more brilliantly. And in seeing you, our Father, Lord, that we would see Christ and his sufficiency. And Lord, that we would be built up and that we would be comforted by Christ. And Lord, that we would put into practice by the work of your Spirit all that you have commanded for us. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you can tell, we're not in the book of Kings anymore. I'm beginning this evening uh, a series through the prophet Nahum. Which is why we read Nahum. (laughs) And as we begin, there's uh, a number of things that I want us to think about even as we set the stage for this prophecy in terms of its historical context and the message and the man, Nahum, himself. This book begins an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkish. As verse 1 tells us, what is contained in this short prophetic book is an oracle Concerning Nineveh. Now you may be asking, why is there a prophet telling us about about Nineveh? Nineveh is not in Israel. Nineveh isn't God's people. And now if you think again about Nineveh, you're going to wonder why there are two books in the scriptures. That are concerned with Nineveh, right? Jonah and now Nahum. Now, Nineveh at this time, in the middle of the 7th century, was really uh, the most powerful and influential and wealthiest city in the ancient world. Since Jonah's ministry to that city, which resulted in widespread repentance, the decades after that repentance saw a return to the unbridled wickedness that characterized the previous generations of Ninevites. Now, as far as the relationship between Nineveh and God's people Israel, uh, 722 B.C. saw the exile of the northern kingdom, which left that territory under Assyrian control. 
Judah has held out against the Assyrian assaults, but has been under constant threat. Constant oppression from that empire. And at this point, in the middle of the 6th century BC, Judah is paying tribute to keep some semblance of peace, while at the same time, Judah itself has descended into idolatry and rebellion against the Lord with the help of their king, Manasseh. So what kind of message does Nahum bring? Verse 1 says it's an oracle. I think, and many commentators agree, uh, that, that the translation oracle is probably better to be burden. It is the burden concerning Nineveh, because that burden speaks to the ominous character of the message. The burden of Nineveh, like a weight around the neck, this is a heavy and it is a devastating message concerning this particular city. In terms of the date of when Nahum prophesied, I think it's best to date Nahum's ministry to the later part of King Manasseh of Judah's reign, sometime between 663 and 642. At that time, Assyria is the dominant world power. Assyria is at its height. Assyria is at its height in terms of power and aggression and wealth and its oppressive force. We should notice that nothing in the present circumstances as Nahum is writing and is prophesying would indicate that a fall is coming for Nineveh. Nothing would indicate that Nineveh is on the verge of collapse or that the Assyrian Empire was about to fall apart. In so many ways, the burden of Nineveh was a dangerous message. And really, for the most part, a seemingly irrelevant message since there was no sign that Assyria was headed for ruin. It seemed to be an untimely message at the time it was proclaimed. Now, if Nahum's message was irrelevant then, seemingly, how relevant is it to us some 2,600 years later? Verse 1 goes on to say, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkush. Now, this book is relevant, not because I can do something fancy rhetorically to make it seem relevant to your lives, but because, as it says, it is the Word of God. That language of vision is indicating something obvious to us, but maybe not so obvious to the original audience of this message. The people of Nineveh, the people of Judah, this message is a vision from God. It is a revelation of Almighty God. This is not the word of a mere man, but it is the word of God. It's not the word of this man that we know almost nothing about. We know that his name is Nahum, a fairly common name in the ancient world. It means the Lord is full of comfort. How much that plays into what his message is about, we don't know. We can only 
really speculate. We know that he is of Elkush, which is not a family name, but it is a place. It's a town, likely a town about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And this man is not said to be a prophet explicitly, but it's implied by the fact that he has a burdensome message for Nineveh that comes as divine revelation. A burden concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkush. Aside from the introductory remarks there in verse 1, Nahum doesn't begin delving into the wickedness of Nineveh. Maybe we might think that that's where he would start, but he doesn't, interestingly. He doesn't even delve into the timing of the Lord's coming judgment. But instead, Nahum actually begins with a song. He begins with a hymn, identifying the Lord in his character as being opposed and wrathful towards wickedness, and identifying and singing to the Lord who is omnipotent, who has power over all creation. As we look this evening at verses 2 to 6, I want us to see three things in this opening hymn. Number one, the covenant Lord's character. Covenant Lord's character. Number two, the covenant Lord's power. And finally, number three, the crucial question. If you look in your Bibles at verse two, the word Lord there is likely in all caps or small caps. And as you may know, That is, the translators indicating to us that the Hebrew text that Nahum is using, uh, he's using the word uh, Yahweh, the the covenant name of God. Yahweh, Jehovah, however we think the vowels function. The name of God revealed first to Moses at the burning bush. The name of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of the promise. The name so revered that later Jews so feared to even speak that name that they would say in its place, Hashem, which means the name. This name of the Lord is used three times in verse 2, ten times throughout chapter 1, which indicates that Nahum is concerned that this message of destruction not be considered merely on the horizontal plane of world politics, but that those who hear this message, hear it and understand it first and foremost, theologically, that this is a message concerning what God is doing. And not just any God, not just some God, but the God of Israel. The God who has taken a people to himself, the living and true God. Isaiah, you might remember, prophesied that the Lord would raise up Assyria to chastise his wayward people. And they did. Assyria chastised the Lord's people. But now is the time of reckoning for Assyria. Nahum's psalm 
of the Lord's character and power begins this way. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now when you hear those words, the Lord is jealous, you may instinctively want to recoil a bit. Because most of the jealousy that you've experienced from others and the jealousy that you've experienced inside of yourself was at its root, selfish and sinful. But do you know that there is a good jealousy? Did you know that? Parents are, are rightly jealous to protect their children from dangers and therefore to maintain a godly influence in their lives. There is a right jealousy that a wife has for her husband's affections and attention because he is bound by the covenant of marriage to give himself to her. So his wandering lusts are her business. Yet, as we know, human jealousy is so often twisted with sinful desires and sinful responses that it's probably not the best illustration for us if we want to understand jealousy. Nature may provide a better example. O. Palmer Robertson illustrates the Lord is jealous just as a screeching mother mockingbird terrorizes any feline that comes near her nest. So the Lord hovers over his own to avert any rivals to his sovereignty and centrality. You see, jealousy is the desire to retain something that is rightfully ours, but has been or is at risk of being lost or stolen. Whereas envy, on the other hand, and we always mix those two things up, but envy, on the other hand, is the desire to possess something that rightfully belongs to someone else. The Lord is a jealous God. When what rightly belongs to the Lord is taken, trampled, or destroyed, it is right that he take back what is his by avenging his righteousness. Now think of human pride. By nature, it sells itself up in place of God's glory. Right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And thus attempts to rob God of his honor and rob God of his glory and the praise that is due him and the obedience that is required by him. Yet the fact remains, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is. And those who dwell therein, Psalm 24, 1. The Lord is jealous. Or as other passages similarly say, he is zealous for his name. And in addition to the concern for his glory, the glory that belongs to him as the living and true God, he is also jealous for those who belong to him. He will not allow his people who he chose for himself as his covenant people to be trampled by the wicked. Now if the Lord is jealous for what is his, then vengeance comes as the act of restoring what rightfully belongs to him. Vengeance, when it comes to the Lord, is an act of perfect justice. Three times here in verse 2, Nahum speaks of the Lord's vengeance. 
three times in that one verse. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now when people speak of vengeance, when we speak of vengeance, we need to recognize something very, very important. When people seek revenge, they often do so in passion. They often do so enraged, seeking retaliation for personal offenses. But that's not so with God. Psalm 94, 1-2 says, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. You see, in the Lord's vengeance, there is not vindictiveness, but vindication. It is not retaliation, but the assertion of justice. One of the most troubling portions of Scripture for Christians has to be the harem warfare that the Lord commanded Israel to do when they entered the promised land. Those are the portions that the Christians get to and they just cringe because they don't know what to do. To utterly destroy these people who who are in their native land, every man, every woman, every child, destroy them. Level their cities. How could God, it's asked, kill all those innocent people? Those are are heavy and horrifying passages. But what Nahum is reminding us in verse 2 is that the Lord's vengeance is inextricably tied to his righteousness and his justice. Sinners face God's wrath because that is what transgressing God's righteousness requires. That is how bad it is. In Numbers 31, when Israel is told to go out into battle against Midian, the Lord explicitly uses Israel to execute his vengeance. He tells Moses to go out and and execute vengeance against the Midianites. But we need to see that that judgment is not based on a whim. It's not God uncontrolled in His anger. God is not impassioned like we are. His anger, His wrath, and His vengeance comes as a result of of the jealousy for what belongs to Properly to him. So that at every moment, every judgment upon sin is based upon his holy character. It is always perfectly proportionate to the offense. It is always right and it is always just. It is, of course, why God's people are told not to seek vengeance, but that vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Lord takes 
vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. We rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord's revelation of his mercy to Moses in Exodus 34, 6-7. On Mount Sinai, the Lord declared, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum knew that passage. Nahum quotes that passage. Well, part of it anyway. As he quotes it, he makes a few edits. And what he doesn't include tells us something very important about his message. This burden of Nineveh carries to them no mercy. Is that heavy? The time of the Lord's suffering is over for that city. It has come to an end. There is no time to repent anymore. Unlike what happened with Nineveh a hundred years earlier through the ministry of Jonah, this message for Nineveh that tells of the Lord's slowness to anger does not mean that he has forgotten the wickedness of his adversaries. I think we need to read the beginning of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger in light of what comes before. He keeps wrath for his enemies and what comes after. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His slowness here does not mean that the Lord has forgotten the injustices towards him and his people. Even when vengeance is delayed, the Lord keeps record of what is right. And though it may not come swiftly, he will by no means clear the guilty. And though his slowness may seem like delayed justice, we know that his slowness is not a result of the deficiency in his power. That's not the problem. But rather, his slowness is inextricably tied to his purposes and his plans. Right? We, we know that from the outset of Scripture. Right? The Lord could have justly condemned and killed Adam and Eve on the spot. When the Lord comes walking in the cool of the day, as it's translated, that's actually not a happy thing. That is the Lord coming in judgment upon sin. And Adam and Eve are cowering. Why else would the Lord have to say, where are you? They're trying to hide themselves. But he showed mercy in that moment to a people unworthy. And since then, 
He could at any moment in time come with fire upon the earth. But any delay that there is is owed to his mercy and his purpose to save some. But you see, that delay, though for the repentance of those who would come to him, that delay is no comfort for those who will not. That delay is no comfort for those who continue to rebel against him because he will by no means clear the guilty. For the Lord's good jealousy brings about perfect justice. Verse 3 of this hymn marks a transition from the Lord's character to his power. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Then Nahum provides a vivid description of the Lord's power. Look at that in the second part of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. In our minds, we should not be thinking about white puffy clouds. But of the Lord's character moving into action as he interferes interfaces with his creation. What does, what does creation do when faced with the holiness and righteousness of God? The earth manifests the extreme bounds of its physical limitations. And here we see in poetic verse that God's acts are felt by creation. See, God is not absent. God did not just set things in order and then go off and do his own thing. Verse 4, Nahum recounts a specific instance. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, recounting the great rebuke of the Red Sea at the Exodus, in which the Lord's judgment fell upon Pharaoh, even as the Lord was redeeming Israel. Nahum reminds us that the created world is not an impersonal, self-existent collection of atoms and molecules, but is actively governed by and obedient to God Almighty. You see, the created world that seems so firm and seems so predictable is at the Lord's command. How often do we see images on the news of devastating floods that sweep in in a matter of hours and destroy entire towns? For all the technology and all the affluence that we enjoy, too much rain comes and we lose everything. Not enough rain and guess what? We have nothing to eat. And as mighty as Assyria thinks they are, they are still, like every single person, at every moment, utterly dependent upon God and his ordering of the universe. At his command, the fertile valleys, the timbered forests, the flowering meadows, they wither away to nothing. All that the Lord established, 
to give food and sustenance to humanity is gone in an instant when the Lord commands it. The mountains. You look at the mountains and you think, wow, that's majestic. They're firm and they're fixed. They're immovable. But at the presence of the Lord, they quake. The hills of granite and stone, they melt before him. They can't even stand before his presence. This is a description of the universe upheld moment by moment by the word of his power coming undone at his glorious presence. Peter describes the great coming of judgment of God at the end of the age as when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. This is the first thing that Nahum wants us to see. This is the Lord. This is his character. This is his power. And in light of the Lord's righteous character and almighty power, Nahum asked the crucial question. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Can you? If all creation melts before him, who will stand? See, the covenant Lord is not indifferent to those who break his covenant. If his own people, Israel, endured endured chastisement for abandoning their God, how much more will those whose pride is their God? How will the heathen fail? Now this is a perennial problem of humanity. Just go talk to your non-Christian neighbors. It's assumed that delayed judgment means there's no judgment. It's assumed that denying the Lord's existence absolves one from the Lord's righteous demands upon his creatures, of whom every person is, whether or not they will acknowledge it. But do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. Nahum beautifully asks that question. Who can stand? And then brings the character and power of the Lord to bear upon that question. You see, Nahum wants to do something to his audience. He wants them to know something. See, we must never take lightly the jealousy and wrath of God. It is, it is essential for God's people to approach the Lord's wrath with sobriety. Nahum uses this rhetorical question to bring 
the character and power of the Lord to bear upon the hearts of his hearers. Isn't it easy to rejoice over the downfall of your enemies? Let's be honest. To begin to gloat because the Democrats are stumbling all over themselves or because the Republicans lost that particular election? Right? Isn't it easy to begin to gloat when our enemies fall? It would be easy for Judah, provided they could even imagine this message to be true, it would be easy for them to get behind such a message of the disaster for Nineveh. But you see, that's not what the Lord wants through Nahum's words. Nahum begins by putting each and every person in their place where they must answer this question. And the rhetorical nature of the question allows for only one answer. I hope you're answering that correctly. The answer is no one. Who can stand before the Lord's indignation? Nobody can stand. Who can stand before the Lord? No one and nothing in all creation. For even that which is most firm and that which is most fixed in creation becomes as uncreation before Almighty God. You see, the moment that we diminish the all-consuming jealousy of the Lord and the vengeance that establishes justice, it's in that moment that we begin to reduce the glory of the cross of Christ. Do you see how that works? If sin really isn't that bad and God's judgment really isn't that severe, then the cross of Jesus really isn't all that important. This vision of God's character and power must undergird our understanding and our praise for his mercy in the gospel of Jesus. Because no one can stand. See, this vision of God's character and power should shape the way we see the plight of our unsaved friends and family members and neighbors. That's the reality. They need Jesus. They're storing up for themselves vengeance and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. They need to hear this bad news that that no one can stand before the Lord. We don't need to come up with fancy programs that draw people in because they're excited about this particular thing. They need to hear that Jesus came to save sinners. Not even creation itself can withstand his gaze. Oh, but pastor, my neighbors are such nice people. I bet they are really nice people. I don't doubt that. But the fact of the matter remains. They need a real and they need an effective atonement for their sins. Just like you. Do you ever feel like the gospel message isn't relevant? 
How, how do I even talk to my neighbors about this thing called sin that they don't even acknowledge and judgment that they, that they think is just insane, antiquated, foolish, the opiate of the people? There is nothing more relevant. And that's exactly what we see at the beginning of this prophecy. Who can stand? No one. All are laid bare. When the Lord comes in judgment, Revelation tells us that the people are going to cry out for rocks to fall on them. But those rocks we see can't hide anyone. They melt before the Lord who exposes all things. There is none righteous, no, not one. Except for the Lord himself who is righteousness. For the Lord himself who took on flesh and carried our burden. Right, this is our burden. This is, this is us in our natural condition, with this burden around our neck, it is the burden that Christ came to bear for us as he bore our sin on the cross, bearing the full weight of God, his Father's vengeance and wrath for our sin. See, there's another side of the covenant God that we'll look at next week. In declaring the Lord's good jealousy, Nahum also declares at the same time in verse 7, the Lord is good. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. See, Nahum is at the same time proclaiming this burden upon Nineveh. He is calling God's people, the covenant people. He's calling Judah to trust in the Lord who is good. The Lord that yet his purposes included the use of the Assyrians as a tool for their own chastisement. Yet the Lord is good and the Lord is a stronghold people. Dear brothers and sisters, Nahum's weighty hymn of the Lord's character and power ought to cause our hearts to cherish Christ all the more. Because we have received costly mercy we did not deserve, that in him we may stand before the Lord of glory and power. It's only then that the burden of Nineveh can become a comfort for God's people. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. That by your word you declare what is true. You don't declare the things that we think we want to hear. But Lord, you declare the truth. And you declare life. And to us, you declare judgment. 
and you declare mercy. Oh Lord, may we, in seeing your character and your power, look to Christ who took upon himself the vengeance that was ours. May our hearts cherish Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.